Hey everyone, it's Cappy. Welcome to Beyond the Plate. This is a podcast where we sit down with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey into the food industry and the social impact they have made in their community. Today's guest is Chef Michael Simon. This episode is made possible with the help of our friends at Keurig. Keurig coming in hot. Haha, <laughs> get it? With a new limited edition Love Blend, it's a collection of three craft roasted blends co-created in collaboration with five local roasters across America. More on them throughout the season. I gotta be honest, some people say I'm a coffee snob. I don't think I'm a coffee snob. I just like pretty decent coffee. And by pretty decent, I like a really good cup of coffee. This Love Blend is it. I'm telling you, it comes in light, medium, and dark roasts. Besides Keurig being convenient, the quality's there, everybody. I mean, they worked with these small roasters, so they really had their eye on the prize, if you will. I really encourage you to check these out. The first day that I tried these, I had three cups of it before noon. I don't know if that was a good idea. I think it was because all of them were delicious. I think I'm a fan of the medium roast, to be honest, but... I'll go back and do another test. Anyway, here's what I also love about the limited edition Love Blend. When you order the Keurig Love Blend, proceeds from your purchase go back to support the five roasters that came together to create them. Talk about supporting local. Bravo, Keurig. Also, these K-Cup pods are recyclable. Check locally as they are not recyclable in all communities. To learn more about the limited edition Keurig Love Blend and their five roasters and to order product, holidays coming up, hint, hint, coffee lovers please visit Keurig.com backslash loveblend and follow them on social media at Keurig. Keurig, we thank you. Today's guest is a chef. He's a restaurateur, TV personality, author, philanthropist, and the list goes on and on. You may know him from his time on The Chew or one of his many Food Network shows or one of his many great restaurants around the country, be it Cleveland, Detroit, Atlantic City, wherever you may have dined. Michael Simon is truly one of the nicest and kindest guys in the industry. He's extremely talented. You most likely know him from his laugh, which you can spot or here, I should say, anywhere. This is a great episode. He goes deep into how food shaped him as a kid through his family. When I think of Michael Simon, I think of one thing. We did an incredible fundraiser for the charity that I work on with Rachel Ray. It was a one-night event, a very high-end event, if you will. But we brought in five high school kids from around the country, and Michael Simon literally spent days with them, taking them to farmer's markets and different purveyors around New York City and creating this whole menu. Definitely an experience these kids will never forget. But this is the kind of guy that he is. He's extremely giving. He's very philanthropic. His foundation does an incredible amount of work in Cleveland. They have been doing it since before COVID, but have especially stepped up during the past many, many months. Before we go, I do want to mention we have some awesome new merch for everybody, which you can find in a link in your podcast player, or you can go to beyondtheplatemerch.com. We have some super soft tees and hoodies and different styles of hats and beanies as well. So make sure you check them out. And without any further ado, please enjoy this episode as we go Beyond the Plate with Chef Michael Simon. Hey, Chef, I want to do a quick audio test to adjust my levels. Please name 10 cuts of pasta for me while I do that. Oh, geez. Okay. 
Rigatoni, Penny, Pagliatelle, Farfalle, uh, Gnocchi, Capellini, Fettuccini, did I say Fettuccini? Fettuccini, Linguini, Gnocchi, Pappardelle. Got it. Thank you. All right, man. So my first uh, Chef Michael Simon experience, this was crazy. When I lived in New York, I used to write down everywhere where I ate for the first long amount of time. And it was at Perea in 2007. Yeah, it was a while ago. And here's what I remember that I had Greek dips, crispy pork with beets, honey, and pistachios, fried zucchini with feta, roast chicken with basil eggplant and whipped feta, and Greek fries. Wow, you have a good memory. <laughs> it was good. Thank you. That was a fun little consulting gig. Yeah. Do you um, share one of your most like memorable meals, whether it was dining out or something you cooked at home or something someone cooked for you? Gosh, you know, um, for one reason, one of the most memorable. So when we, we opened Lola in 1997 and... During that time, Michael Woolman was writing Soul of a Chef. So it was with myself. He featured three chefs. It was um, Michael Polson, Thomas Keller, and myself. So Thomas was in Cleveland a lot when that book was being written because Michael Woolman was also working on the French Laundry Cookbook. And so Thomas ate at Lola several times before Liz and I had had a chance to get the French Laundry and French Laundry, I believe, opened a year before we did, roughly. And I even thought about going out there to work with Thomas. Uh, I'd known him prior to work with Thomas for the opening of French Laundry. And then Liz and I decided to open our own restaurant. And so Thomas had been to Lola several times. And he kept saying, you guys got to get out. You got to get out. We were working seven days a week. And we got married about a year after Lola had opened. And we decided to take a three-day honeymoon because that's all we could take. And we went to Napa Valley and went to French Laundry. And French Laundry probably been open about a, uh, probably around two years at that point. And the French Laundry cookbook wasn't out yet. And it was like a famous restaurant, but Thomas wasn't as famous as he became after the book and stuff came out. Liz and I went, we sat down, and we, we were staying at a little B&B next door in Yonville. And uh, Thomas came out to the table and the waiter's like, he never comes out to the table. And I'm like, oh, you know, okay. I said, we've known each other for quite a long time. And uh, he said, you guys, do you, he said, do you mind if I just cook for you for your, for your wedding present? I said, gosh, no, that'd be spectacular. So he, we proceeded to have 36 courses and nothing that either of each course was two bites but nothing that either of us had was the same thing. So we had 72 different bites of food over about five and a half hours. And I remember Liz and I got back to the B&B afterwards. It was like literally, you know, 500 feet. And we were, we were laying in bed and we were writing down everything we had. And I'm like shaking my head and she's like, what's wrong? I'm like, I suck. I am just not a good chef like this. Is this is other level kind of stuff. You know, like it was like, oh my God. And, you know, and then the French laundry cookbook came out and Thomas continued to get more, you know, French, I think like two years following that French laundry was named best restaurant in the world for like three or four straight years. And, and like, I remember sometimes like, you know, cause people, people are, people are people are like, oh, he's so overrated. 
And I'm like, really? I said, tell me your 72 best dishes. <laughs> because when I went there for dinner, he did 72 different preparations of food and not a sauce, a vegetable, a starch, or a protein repeated itself. So, you know, if you could name me 72 dishes right now, have at it. Have you been back since that experience? Yeah, I've been I've been back a couple times since then. And every experience has been great there because it's a spectacular restaurant, but nothing was like that one. Also, I would say, so it, that, it was the combination of just the amount of precision and just the whole experience. And it was our honeymoon and we hadn't had a day off in like, you know, over a year. And But also in the same year that Lola opened, Mark Vetri opened Vetri in Philly. We've been friends you know, for gosh, like close to 25 years now, Mark and I have. And the first time I went to Betri, it just, I'd never eaten Italian food like that. Not in Italy, not anywhere. It just, it just blew me away. You know, he did, Liz and I went there and probably did about six or seven courses of pasta. And, you know, everyone was just insane, just absolutely insane. Let's talk about uh, the city that Michael Simon helped build, culinarily speaking. The, the CLE. <laughs> Where'd you grow up? And I want you to like take us inside the Simon family kitchen. Okay. <laughs> like who's there? What'd you guys eat? What was talked about? Like all that stuff. My mom and dad are both from outside of Pittsburgh. My mom lived in Pittsburgh until she graduated from high school. My dad moved to Cleveland. My grandparents moved my dad to Cleveland when he was like eight or nine and he grew up on the east side of Cleveland in Cleveland Heights. And that's where my grandparents lived. And that's where I was born. And then my parents moved to the west side of Cleveland when I was, you know, like seven, eight years old, something like that, because my dad, where my dad worked at Ford Motor Company was a 10 minute commute from the west side and an hour commute from the east side. But then I was always, Cleveland's weird. It's like, it's a very divided city. Like it's like, are you an east sider or are you a west sider you know and i kind of grew up in both because my grandparents lived east even after we moved out of there so i was always at my grandparents house on the weekends because my dad worked midnight so i kind of was i guess fortunate enough to grow up on both sides of town and you know growing up so my mom food for my mom's side of the family is really interesting because my mother is greek and sicilian um and her Mother is Sicilian and her father was Greek. Her father passed away when she was 12. And until that time, she never knew she was Sicilian. They only spoke Greek in the house. My yaya only cooked Greek food. I guess the story goes is when my papu was dating my yaya, they found out she wasn't Greek and they kicked him out of the Greek community. So then Mayaya, who only had a, a eighth grade education, taught herself how to cook, read, and write Greek. So as time passed, he had his Greek friends over, and Mayaya cooked dinner and spoke to him in Greek, and, and they accepted him back in the community. So they only, my mom was only allowed to speak Greek in the house. And they only ate Greek food and all that stuff until my poppy passed when she was 12. And then, you know, the Italian food started kind of popping back up again, the Sicilian food. So my mom really good cook with like traditional Greek and, and Sicilian type dishes. Now, if you ask her to grill a steak, it's a hot mess. 
you know, like she can make pasticcio, moussaka, baklava, you know, great pastas, all that kind of stuff. Grill a steak, it's over. <laughs> like it's, it's just, something just disconnects in her brain. And then we were, we, we were big. We never went out to eat as a kid. We always ate at home. And then my dad's side of the family is Eastern European from, it doesn't even exist anymore. It's Ruthania. It was up in the Carpathian Mountains. It's now part of the Ukraine. So my dad's side of the family was a lot of the, a lot of Eastern European foods, you know, uh, borscht, pierogi, you know, cabbage and noodles, all those kind of things, which is what a lot of Cleveland is. You know, that's that Eastern European food is really uh, prevalent in Cleveland, like halushki and stuffed cabbage. When my mom was cooking, it was always Greek or Sicilian food. And then, but when we went to my dad's parents' house, it was always very Eastern Euro. And, and when I would stay with my, I stayed with my dad's parents on the weekends a lot. And so my, my grandparents, they lived in Cleveland Heights. So I'd go over there and my grandfather was a pipe fitter. You know, he worked Monday through Friday. And my, my grandmother worked at Higby's in downtown Cleveland, which, you know, was a, a clothing store. So I, I go over to my grandparents and then on Saturdays, we get in my grandfather's car. He always had like a big old Lincoln. And we would go downtown. We would, we'd have to pick up my grandmother for work and we'd go downtown about two hours early and we'd go to the West Side Market and he'd buy all the crazy Eastern European food. And then we'd pick up my grandmother and he'd come home and cook, you know, and they both cooked, but my grandfather was really a spectacular cook. Like, you know, the, the pierogi dough for the beef cheap pierogi at Lola is his dough recipe. You know, he's the one that taught me like how to make sausage and, how, you know, all that kind of stuff. I really learned from him as a kid. How old were you when you were picking up on this? Um, God, I was, yeah, I was in the kitchen a lot as a kid. I, you know, I would say, I mean, I remember being in the kitchen like under 10, but I really don't remember learning stuff till, you know, my early teenage years. Do you remember like the first dish you made? The first things that I learned how to make were I learned how to make and form pierogi, you know, because it was always like a big production at my grandparents' house. And then my mom taught me how to make baklava. Those were like the two dishes I learned how to make before anything else. That's awesome. Did you did you have any jobs outside the kitchen? Not, well, you know, basic, you know, <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, my parents, we worked. <laughs> so, I mean, I, you know, my dad at Ford, he basically worked seven days a week and he worked midnights until I was in high school. So, you know, he worked a ton. So, you know, I, I did, I was in charge of mowing the lawn, taking care of outside, rototilling the garden. You know, and a lot of times I did it with my grandfather. He would come over and help. But yeah, we, uh, we weren't, my sister and I weren't raised like, oh, we'll take care of it. <laughs> like we, we took care of it. <laughs> you know, so it was like, we were the cleaning service, the landscapers, the, you know, um, and then I, I mean, I had, you know, in, in my family growing up, it was like, you work, that's what you do. I mean, I had two paper routes when, when I was in like seventh and eighth grade through high school in Cleveland. Back then there was the plane dealer, which was the morning paper. And then the paper got delivered in the afternoon. It was called the Cleveland press. So I would deliver the plane dealer before school and then get home from school and deliver the press until I could get like a regular job. And the first, the first kitchen job, Geppetto's? Geppetto's. Yeah. I was, uh, I think I was 15, 16. Did you learn anything there? Yeah, it was, it was a great, you know, it was a, a friend of mine's, parents restaurant and you know they did ribs and they did barbecue ribs and they did uh pizza it was ribs it's a, it was a ribs and pizza joint and uh yeah i mean i learned you know some early stuff about barbecue there and 
Um, you know, back then it, they ended up like franchising it where they got like, I think like 20 or so of them around Northeast Ohio. I, there's only one or two left now, but you know, the, the ribs would come in raw, you'd season them. I mean, and then the pizza dough, we would make it house. And, you know, so I learned basic, some really basic, good cooking techniques there. Was that a job that made you want to pursue cooking more? Yeah. So, yeah. So what happened to me is I was a, a, a decent wrestler and my junior year in high school, I, I really mauled my arm. I had a, a plate, 14 screws, and I dislocated my elbow all in one thought. So that you have two bones coming up your forearm. You might even be able to see the, there's still a good, wow. pretty good zipper there. So yeah. you have two bones going up. One compound fractured. That was the easy break. The other one shattered, and then I then my elbow went up to here. They put a and it happened in a match, so they I had to get a I got a plate and like thirteen screws and the shattered bone. Put the compound one back, put my elbow back in place, and they said you're probably not going to wrestle again. They put me in a cast after the surgery. It was the the same doctor that did the stuff for the Browns back then. I was in a cast for about six months. I get the cast off. They told me that I shouldn't wrestle, and I said to my dad, I you know I've been wrestling since I've been eight years old, seven years old. He's like, how does it feel? I said, it feels pretty good. He goes, well, just you know, see how it feels. And so I started working out and practicing and wrestling again. And I woke up one morning and I go wake up my dad. And I'm like, something's wrong. He's like, what do you mean? And my arm was like double the size. And they bring me in and I had cracked the plate in my arm. So they had to go back and reset it. And then I was in a cast for another year. So I was in a like essentially for a year and eight months, it was like six months Then I wasn't in one for two months and another year I was in a cast. All my scholarship opportunities and stuff had kind of diminished. And I came from a very blue collar middle-class family. And so I started working in restaurants. The, that's why I took the job at Geppetto's was to like start saving money to help pay for college and fell in love with the restaurant business and told my dad that I, I think I want to go to culinary school and told me absolutely not. You know, there was no food network back then or it was, I mean, I was going to be a tradesman, which I still think of myself as quite honestly. He goes, you're going to college, you know, that's, you're going to college. I'm like, okay. So I went to college for a semester and I got a 0.2 GPA on a 2.2. Then my mom said, this is ridiculous. You're letting them go to culinary school. And you know, and my, my father's like six, three, my mom's four eleven. but you don't want to piss off my mom. So she was like, <laughs> the Greek Sicilian blood was going. And, and so, you know, off the culinary school, I went and that's it, you know? So I think you said flash forward ahead, 1997, you open your first restaurant with your then fiance, now wife, Correct. Liz, how'd you guys uh, manage to survive that together? <laughs> well, you know, we met in the restaurant business in, uh, 1990, when I moved back from New York, she says 91, I said 90, but either 90 or 91, depending on who's telling the story. So since I'm telling the story, I'm going to say 1990. So I, I graduated from culinary school and then I moved back from New York and I took a job at this little <clears throat> great Mediterranean restaurant outside of Cleveland called Players and a little 38 seat, 40 seat boutique Mediterranean restaurant. And Liz was also a native Clevelander, but had lived in Boston, New York, and then Boston, moved back about six months prior to when I did and took a job at this restaurant as a manager. And I took a job as a cook. So we met there and it was, we, we, we became very, very good friends when we were there because, you know, it, it was, the restaurant had been open for like 12 years. And essentially 
every employee there other than Liz and I had been there all 12 years. So we were like the two new kids. So, you know, we kind of bonded on that. And, and as I like to tell everybody, you know, when we met in 1990, technically she was my boss and here we are almost 30 years later and she still is. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is a perfect segue here because I saw a recent beautiful Instagram post that you guys celebrated an anniversary. So my question is, what three words would you use to describe Liz? Three words to describe Liz. Um, Strong, loving, and loyal. Strong, loving, loyal. What three words would Liz use to describe you? Pain in ass. (laughs) (laughs) All right, everyone, that's it. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. She's close. (laughs) So she, well, it would be interesting what she would use. But like for, for Liz, it's like, for me, she's the loyalest person I've ever known. Like if you are, once you, Liz is kind of shy at first and, and, but once you get to know her and like you're on her team, they're like, there's nothing she would not do for the people that she loves. It's un, her loyalty is as fierce as any human I've ever met in my life, you know, and, and she's tough, but she's, she's still very loving, you know. I wonder what she would use the three words she would use to describe me. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask her when she comes back in the house. That'll be actually funny. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, so Lola, 1997. What was what was the dream with your first restaurant? So uh, when we so it, it when we opened our first restaurant, we it was uh, it was actually kind of funny. It, you know, we, the, the dream was is you know both of us would spend time in New York. Liz would also spend time in Boston. The, the restaurants, there were some restaurants in Cleveland at the time. Some of them had been around forever, but there was no, there was nowhere in Cleveland that was like, there was either fine dining or like a cafe. There was no place where like you could get really good food, but you didn't have to wear a shirt and a tie and get dressed up, you know? And when we opened Lola, we wanted to open, like in, in retrospect, it was a really stupid plan in, in the sense of like, like let's open a restaurant that like waiters and servers and cooks want to eat at. Well, you know, that sounds good on paper, but it's like they're working when you're open. <laughs> so but like when Lola first opened, like it'll be busy on Mondays. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So when Lola first opened, it was open till one o'clock every night during the week and two o'clock on weekends. And we did a tremendous amount of business with, with restaurant people, like an insane amount from, 11 till close every night. And that in turn pushed like, you know, it, it was, it was one of those things that we didn't know was going to work this way, but it did. And you know, the servers would go back to their job and customers would come in and the customers say, Oh, where do you like to eat? And they go Lola, you know? And so then it just, it, it exploded. But so, but the, the premise of the restaurant when we opened was um, we wanted to do Midwestern cuisine because we didn't feel you know, we felt that there was California cuisine and, and this and that, but we didn't feel that there was food that really represented the Midwest in, in the United States at the time. So we really focused on taking dishes that a Clevelander or Midwesterner was very comfortable with and doing, maybe using ingredients with it that they're not comfortable with. The, the beef cheek pierogi is like the perfect example. You know, it's like it's been on the menu since day one. It was like maybe people weren't willing to eat beef cheek in Cleveland 20, almost 25 years ago, but they know what a pierogi is, 
you know, so when we first put it on the menu, beef cheek pierogi was still a tough sell. And then we changed the name of it to pot roast pierogi and we sold like a hundred, you know? So it, it, so it was that it was like, it was taking that Midwestern cuisine or what we felt was Midwestern cuisine and really pushing the envelope on that. And then, you know, Liz did all the beverage programs and stuff. And basically with the wines, she would just, regardless of what the wine was at the time, she'd buy the bottle and add 10 bucks or something. It was something of that ilk. So we wanted to make it like, you know, just a little bit more fun and affordable for at the time, the younger clientele that wanted a place to call their own, but maybe at that time couldn't necessarily afford to eat at some of these highfalutin places. So, you know, when we opened Lola out of the gate, now, now granted, this is 1997. I don't think there was an entree on the menu under 20 bucks or over 20 bucks. And, and all the wines were only marked up minimally. So, you know, uh, we, we just, it was the, it was the most interesting dynamic in that restaurant. And it, it, like we, you, you could have never planned to create it. It just kind of happened. But like, I remember one night, you know, we're sitting there and it was, it, fortunately we, we were, I mean, just, you couldn't get in for six months and it's, it stayed, it's stayed like that till Corona to be quite honest with you. But, but like in the early years, the first first six months we were open, it was an open kitchen and like Liz would expedite and I'd cook and I'm like on the line and, and she goes, look at this. And I look into the dining room and sitting at one table is Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails. And at the table next to him is Dick Jacobs, who owns the Cleveland Indians. So, you know, you got Trent, who's Trent. And, you know, Dick at the time was like 85 years old and in his blue leisure suit. And, and they're like having a great time, just bullshitting with each other and talking. And, and I'm like, and Liz is like, man, it's like, it was lightning in a bottle. It was just like, we would get such a incredibly diverse clientele you know, from young to old to black to white, it didn't matter. It was like, you, we would just get this giant melting pot of people and, and everyone was just really happy to be there and having a good time. And it just worked, you know, it just worked. Yeah. That's awesome. So, but so you've opened a lot of restaurants yeah. since then, yeah. closed some, yeah. opened plenty. What do you love most about opening restaurants. God, I love, I love opening restaurants so Do much. You? I love it. Now we're all different with this. Like there's, you know, there's three partners, there's myself, there's Liz and there's Doug, and we all have different responsibilities through the opening. But I, I love when there is a whole new staff and like my favorite part is the, the week or so leading right before the restaurant opens. Everything before that makes me crazy. Like Doug deals with all that shit. Like, you know, this wall's not painted right. Like Liz does all the design and gets everything going. Doug manages the contractors once it gets going. I hate all that stuff. I hate it. Like, like, but what I love is a week prior to opening, two weeks prior to opening, the, all the new staff comes in and we usually bring some of our, you know, we still have staff from the original restaurant. So we bring, you know, those people that have been with us for 20 plus years to, to help with the openings. And we start doing the tastings um, and going over every dish. And so like I get to go in the kitchen and work with these young cooks and really get into their head and see what they're passionate about. And, and then you get to take that food and 
bring it out to the front of the house and talk to him about the dish and watch him eat it and see him get excited. And I, I, those 10 days to two weeks, whatever, to me are like the most magic part of a restaurant open. How do you deal with or handle obstacles in your career? I, you know, I've gotten better, I think, at handling them as I've gotten a little bit older. You know, when I was younger, they would frustrate me. Like, I would just get frustrated. You know, now I just think of them as that it's just, I don't let them get me down. Like, you know, I, I try to, like, I try to think of most obstacles as an opportunity to learn something. And, you know, the, the thing that I've learned the most is when an obstacle happens, I'm like, is this, is this something that I caused or something that is happening? And, but either way, you still need to learn from it and say like, all right, look, like, I don't want that to happen again. Like, what can I do so that doesn't happen again? Um, Cause that sucked. So, you know, I, I now I just, I, I don't let them aggravate me. I just, I, I let them teach me, so to speak. Um, and, and that's not saying I don't get aggravated. I still do, but it's, it's a lot less frequent than, than when I was younger. What aggravates you? You know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, I'll, I'll just, I'll tell you me like in the kitchen, what aggravates me. So like with young cooks in the kitchen, like if you show them something, like I always say, I'll show you once. I'll show you twice. If I had to show you a third time, we got a problem because <laughs> either you're not paying attention or you're not capable or whatever it is. And if someone, if someone is struggling with something, I have no problem working through the whole process with them. If it takes them a hundred times, I don't care if they're, if the effort's there, I'll do the hundred times. So what's, what frustrates me or like what frustrates me is when I feel that there's a lack of caring or effort or, you know, I, I tend to get aggravated with that from a consumer standpoint. I, I tend to get aggravated. I don't like if someone want, like when I was young as a chef and someone wanted to change a dish, I used to lose my mind. I'd be like, well, you know, like when they would be like, I don't want this sauce. I want sauce on the side. I want this this way. Blah, 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 blah. It used to make me insane. Like I would just be like, why do they come out to dinner? Just cook it at home, you know? But I've learned that it's like, look, if people are coming out to eat and they want things the way they want them and it's our job to make the customer happy. Like that's our job, you know? So, but what makes me crazy is when a customer like will change a dish all up and then be like, I don't like this. I'm like, well, yeah, you know why you don't like it? Because you put the sauce from the salmon on the chicken with the vegetable from the pork and the like, yeah, I could have told you it was going to taste like shit, you know? So that, that, that aggravates me, but you know, that's just, that doesn't happen too often. Yeah. So you, you have restaurants in many cities. How do you make sure that something like your mom's lasagna is being cooked in Atlantic city, how you remember it growing up? So we are very fortunate in the sense of, we have a lot of long-term employees. And so when we have a restaurant that's in Atlantic city or in Vegas, they all have minimally one or more of an employee that's been with us for over 20 years. That's been with us long enough that they know my mom and dad very well. They've had my mom's lasagna, <laughs> you know? So, so like the example in Atlantic city would be Frankie Ritz. Who's our GM there. Frank has been, has worked with Liz and I for 29 years. He was a bartender at a restaurant we worked at. When we opened Lola, we made him the bartender then became bar manager, then he became GM, then he became district manager, and now he oversees all of AC. I mean, so he's been part of my family for, 
nearly 30 years. I mean, he knows my mom and dad very well. And like my mom used to at Lola, my mom and Liz's mom would take reservations on the phone. They, yeah, they, they used to come in, we were closed for lunch. They would come in and they would take all the reservations. So our parents, that staff that's been with us forever, our parents know them all intimately. They were at their weddings. They were, you know, the whole kit and caboodle. So we're able, because we've had so many loyal employees that have been with us for so long, we're able to disperse them kind of in these restaurants that maybe I can't get to, you know, every day, obviously. And like, if something's wrong, Frank knows, <laughs> you know, like get the borgata. Like sometimes the chef will be like, I'll get a call from the chef and they'll be like, uh, you know, chef Frank said that the sauce, I just, I'm like, dude, if Frank said it's not right, it's not right. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know what to tell you. I know he's the GM and you're the chef technically, but if Frank said it's not right and it needs whatever basil, it needs basil <laughs> because he has eaten my mom's food and my food for, you know, he's 50. He's the same age as me, 51 years old for over half his life. He has eaten everything that I have made. My mother's made, you know, so he knows, you know, and in Vegas, uh, when we opened in Vegas, Joe Swan, the chef, started working with us when he was 15 in high school, you know, now he's 40 years old, you know, and he ran uh, Mabel's and, and Sarah's in Vegas. Joe knows, <laughs> you know, like he knows if he tastes something, this isn't how Michael wants this. I know that, you know, that's so, amazing. Yeah. So we're, we've been very blessed in that manner. It's like, even with, you know, when we do the cookbooks and stuff, you know, my culinary director, Katie Pickens, you know, Katie has been with Liz and I since she's been, I think 17, you know, so, you know, she's been with us over 15 years, you know, and to me, that's the secret to our success is, is, you know, we have a lot of very long time loyal employees that know how we like things and, and they're like family to us. What three words would Frankie Ritz say about you? <laughs> <laughs> Big, fat and stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I mean, him and I have been through wars. I mean, I can imagine. Oh my God. When we were opening Lola, we bought Lola. It was a, a, a there was a restaurant there. It was like, it was a fun restaurant, you know, kind of had a bad reputation for like crazy partying and stuff would happen after hours and all that kind of nonsense. So it had closed and went out of business and then we had taken it over and it, we did Liz and I and Frankie and some of my friends, we essentially built the restaurant ourselves. We like tore it apart and painted it, and put in tile and Liz refabricated all the chair. Like we did everything ourselves. We did it for $140,000. When we, and when we got there, I don't know if it was like these guys weren't clean or it was just that it would was shuttered for seven or eight months. You know, it had a, the kitchen was closed in and we really wanted to have an open kitchen. So like Frank and I are looking at the walls and he's like, it's like, it's just drywall. We could like rip this stuff right down. And it's not even, it's not even all the way to the ceiling. And then I'm like, all right, you know, so we don't know what we're doing. We're like, you know, we have a dumpster outside and we're just tearing shit up basically. And Frank and I, shaking the wall, shaking, ripping it out, shaking and shaking and shaking and shaking and shaking it. And, and, and it was, it was the, the, the place because it was closed and shuttered and not all the coolers were clean. It was gross. You know, it was like, we're getting, now we're getting the wall back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And Frankie's like, push it, push it towards me, push it. And I'm pushing it, and I'm pushing it, and I'm pushing it. And I hear him go, Oh God, Oh God, Oh God. 
And he's like, stop, stop pushing. And I think it's because it's getting too heavy. So I run to the other side to like, I'm going to help him hold it. And the wall was full of cockroaches. And they have now mostly dead, but they have now covered Frank. Oh, God. And Frank has like thick ass, still does like thick ass hair, like Kramer. Like I used to call him Kramer, like crazy big hair. And I'm like, oh my God. He goes, are they on me? Are they on me? I'm like, oh God, they're on you. Like, oh and we like dropped the wall. And we ran outside. We're like, oh God, this is disgusting. It was like, I mean, which it took us from when we purchased it to when Lola actually opened of all that ripping out walls and dealing with that kind of crap. It took us a year to, to open it from the day we purchased it, but it was so Frank and I, have, <laughs> we've been through, through it all. Stuff. Yeah. We've been yeah. through some stuff. I'm guessing you've described this a bunch, but I'm curious. I've seen you describe some of your food as meat centric yet. Am I correct that Liz is vegetarian? She is, she was a vegetarian up until the pandemic. It's like God's little gift to me. She started eating meat again. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so it uh, Liz was a vegetarian when I met her, and then she started eating a little bit of meat, not much, so a little bit of fish, a little bit of meat, and then was a vegetarian for twenty years, and for a couple of those years was a vegan, which actually it. You know, in a very weird way, like my, you know, obviously going back to the Midwestern cuisine and where I was raised and steak and potatoes, you know, meat is what I do. I mean, meat is what made me a famous chef. Did she ever put, not push it on you, but encourage more dishes? Yeah. So here's like one, it, it made me a better cook because it made me understand we get in prime ribeyes, we age them for 45 days, we trim them, we slice them, we get there's not much you got to do to make that thing delicious. The, the meat makes it delicious. When you're cooking vegetarian food, you can't, there's nothing to hide behind. I mean, you, you have to bring it with the flavor. So cooking vegetarian for Liz and vegetarian with Liz made me a better cook. And it probably was a lot healthier for me too, because a couple of days a week, you know, I, I would just eat vegetarian because it was easier to cook us. You know, if one of us, the other were cooking, you know, just to have a meal that both of us could eat. And Liz is a very good cook too. So, and she, she was good at cooking meat. She just didn't eat it. And then she started eating a little bit of meat here and there again with the pandemic, nothing crazy, but, uh, but it was, uh, how did, how did that go down? Were you, were you like making something? She's like, uh, well, you know what that? it was, it was like when the pandemic started the day before they shut the day they shut down New York. I mean, you'll appreciate the story better than anyone. I was going in to the city we were out in Long Island. I was going into the city for to do Food Network Live. I called in the morning. I'm like, you guys, they're like, no, we're still going to, we're shooting. Don't worry about it. And I used to go in once a week and I would do five episodes once a week. Um, I would just do the whole, like a, a whole day, essentially. So I get through the tunnel and I get a call and it's, you know, it's Erica from Food Network. And she's like, they just shut down Food Network. I'm like, oh God. She's like, what do you want to do? I'm like, mm, you know what, I'm going to, they, they had sent a, someone to drive me in. So I'm like, I'm going to go to my apartment, have a double espresso, get back in the car, head back out. And I had Olivia with me and I get back in the car and I'm like, man, I, you know, I said, Eric, what, what are they going to do? Like with, you know, Food Network Kitchen and all that kind of stuff. Like, what? 
like all this stuff, there's, there's going to be no content. You know, I text David Zasloff and I, you know, and I said, David, I like, look, I'm, I'm heading back to Long Island. I said, Olivia is with me who does all my social and anything that we've done, like for cookbooks and stuff. She shoots everything on her iPhone. She's great at it. I'm like, we could still produce content out of my house. He goes, give me a second. By the two hours I get home. Now we're on an email with like 20 people from the food network trying to figure out how to make this work. And the next day I started doing food network lives on their Facebook page. And we did 50 straight days of it during the pandemic. And, you know, it it was just kind of luck, but we were like the first chef or whatever to do that. No one else had done it to that point where it was like, because we started on day one and we were, we just were cooking out of our house. Well, you know, when I'm cooking, when I'm cook teaching, it's like, you know, I'll do a vegetarian dish here and there, but you know, that's not certainly not my wheelhouse. And it was hard to, all of a sudden it was really hard to get groceries and hard, you know, so like I would go out and I would buy, you know, whatever I could buy and I'd come home and, you know, I'd buy hopefully a week's work and I would just, whatever we had, I would just cook and live would film it. We'd do a dish in an hour and people would ask questions. And so most of the stuff I was making was, had meat in it, like, at the grocery stores at the time, in the beginning of the pandemic, you didn't have a lot of choices when you went to the grocery store. It wasn't like it is now. It was, it was like stuff was really picked over and you're like, what the hell's going on? I mean, couldn't even get toilet paper for Christ's sakes. And so Liz would, you know, just whatever I made, she would eat. And she's like, guys, meat, this meat isn't as bad as I remember it. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. And that's kind of how that started. I'm glad you mentioned that. It was so, I think this was kind of earlier on. You did a cook along for the New York City Wine and Food Festival at Home series, which I moderated. Actually, that was you did your gnocchi and bolognese, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, I think that was you had started doing some of these videos a little before that. Yeah, that was. I think that was a couple weeks in. Question: When you realized the pandemic wasn't going away so soon. What role did you think you were going to play as a chef? Well, you know, I, I started doing the, the Facebook live stuff out of, you know, initially I was like, you know, Food Network needs some content. I obviously I've been with Food Network since 98 doing stuff for them anyhow. And I'm going to be home and I'm, you know, but then as it started going, what I realized is it, it, it played a couple roles. You know, it was, I realized that it was, it became really important. Like we were getting, I think through the course of those 50 days, we got like over 30 million views. What I realized during the course of it, because there was a discussion with them asking questions and me answering like it, I, I think at a time where there was a lot of panic and nervousness and people wanted to get away from the news and, you know, it gave people an hour of comfort every day. And, and quite frankly, it gave me an hour of comfort every day. Like I, you know, I, I was as stressed out as everybody else was. I mean, you know, so it gave me like, you know, I would write the menus, I would prep them and Liv would shoot them and I'd cook. So, you know, for five hours a day, it would just keep my mind busy, you know, in the midst of, of, you know, oh my God, I, I can't see Kyle. I can't see my granddaughter. I can't see 
Kristen, I can't get home to make sure my mom and dad are okay. Liz's parents at the time were both in a nursing home. You know, our dog just died. The restaurant's closed. It was like, holy shit, this is just not, you know, 2020 could bite me, man. And, and it, that those 50 days, like, I think like I still get so many comments, like, thank you so much for doing that. And, you know, what I always tell people though, is man, you know, you're thinking me, I'm thinking you like it, it helped me. It, 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 it just, it was like, uh, you know, for so much of my life now for 35 years or more of my life, you know, the most comfortable place for me is the kitchen. So in a, in a time that was really stressful for, you know, America and myself and, you know, it, it, it put me directly in my most happy place. And, you know, it was just me and Liz and Olivia that was it. and our, and our puppy that was misbehaving terribly at the time. And it, it just, uh, you know, so I, I think it, it wasn't like a, you know, I didn't set out and say, I'm going to make people feel better about themselves during this pandemic and get them through. But, but you, as you were going through it, you realized how much it was helping everyone, you know, cause you all, you know, and, and you know, this, you know, so much, like everything just stopped, you know, I mean, TV shows stopped filming things, studios closed down, right? You know, so it was like normalcy just went away. And I mean, normalcy is coming back now to, to an extent, but I mean, it's different than it was before, but it's, it's back. So that I was able to, you know, give people some kind of consistency and normalcy during that time, I think was very comforting to people and, and very comforting to me. You mentioned Kyle. He has grindstone coffee. Mm-hmm. Yeah, grindstone donut. coffee and donuts in uh, Sag Harbor. Last season, we sat with Danny Meyer the week that his daughter Hallie was opening Cafe Pana in New York City, and he was saying he's like she didn't want my help. He's like <laughs> she did it all on her own. You know, I was like, wow, okay. So my question is, did Kyle want any advice from you or Liz? Yes. <laughs> Well, it was, so it was funny. He, you know, when he opened, you know, I, I think he wanted some advice to start, you know, just, he had a vision in his head and he was following his vision and he would like make the donuts and say, taste them. He wanted opinion, I think more than advice, but then. Did he grew up in the restaurants. Yeah. Yeah. He, so he, he, he was a great student, went to school, hated it. And then was back in kind of restaurant world. And worked in some French bakeries and stuff like that, too, through high school and coffee shops through high school, in addition to working at Lola. So, you know, we would taste stuff. I'd give him my opinion. And then he got delayed a couple times with opening. And he ended up opening in Sag Harbor the first week of August, five years ago, which is like the busiest time you could possibly open in, in Sag Harbor. So they got just like the first day they opened, there were, they, there were like 200 people in line and it was insanity. And he's like, I, I need help. <laughs> so he's like, I'm going down, man, I'm going down. So like I went in and started helping and I'm like, Holy shit, I need help. <laughs> like, this is like, so at that point I'm like, all right, screw it. I called, I flew out my corporate chef, Derek, who's been with me 20 years our director of culinary, Katie, and my pastry chef, Summer, and and our director of operations, Brian Dibel, and 
my business partner, Doug. So all five of them came out and stayed with me and Liz. And wow. we all went in and basically worked August with them. And it was like, like Man, that's a that's a whole series. That's a that's a series for a show right there. Oh my god, it was hilarious. It was it was the opening team we used to open fifteen thousand square foot restaurant in Vegas. We used to help Kyle open an eight hundred square foot donut shop in San Harper. Holy crap, that's like boot camp. And we were all going down. We were going down. It was because it was like like I you know I know a little bit about pastry. I'm not a pastry chef, you know, and we had summer you know, who's, you know, beard award nominated, but you know, she's very, you know, like, here you go. It's perfection. Enjoy. And all of a sudden we're like, uh, we went through 1200 donuts. How is that humanly possible? Crap. So it was like us trying to learn a new gear and, um, you know, it's a different kind of business, but, and, and it's still like, and then after we got through that, he's done everything on his own, but he's still always, you know, he likes, you know, I think like, Today he he brought over some. He was playing around with the donut that we, he was making with potato flour because of all the potato farms out here that he wanted us to taste. So you know now, like I think it's it's a pin. He wants opinion more than help, if that makes sense. Confirmation maybe I don't know, but he's killing it. So that's awesome. Yeah, good for him. That's great. All of our guests here um, beyond the plate get back in different ways, which is one of the main reasons that we started this and wanted to get these incredible stories out there, mainly to share what chefs do outside of the kitchen. And we have this connection dating years back from a, the Yummo fundraiser we did for Rachel's charity back in, gosh, was that two, oh, 2007 or 2008? Long time ago, yeah. You're old too now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> but that was incredible. We took five high school students from around and I, I admire you so much for every, for the time you took for that. I mean, we took five high school students from around the country and you spent like days with them yeah, creating we went this the menu. Markets. It was really awesome. It was really, really special. Incredible event. And it was, it was like, it was like the one and only fundraiser we did for the charity. So whenever everyone's like, do you guys do fundraisers? It's like, this is easy. Just talk about this one incredible event we have. So we've seen chefs like really step up, obviously, in this industry now. Are you surprised? No, uh, it's service industry. I mean, this is what we do. It's like, uh, you know, we always laugh. It's, it's when things get weird, this is what we do. You know, we like it. The service industry is, is at its core about taking care of people, like customers, staff. I mean, that's what it's at at its core. So um, I think when things get bad, that's what the service industry does, you know. And look, you know, when all this started going down, we ramped our foundation up. And, I, you know, I just and the, the great thing is, too, is. You know, you could only do so much as an individual or foundation unless obviously you get support from other individuals or foundations. And, and, you know, we started raising money for Cleveland restaurant workers, Ohio restaurant workers. Yeah. I wanted you to hit on that. You have, you have the Michael, Michael D. Simon foundation. It's very original name. But share a little about that. When the pandemic hit, you know, Ohio, 15% of all employees in Ohio are restaurant workers. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a massive part of, of the community there. And, you know, all the restaurants closed, including ours. And we kept one, you know, Lola started doing meals weekly for, for local food banks to like get food there. And then, you know, then we realized, you know, some people on our staff were 
struggling a little bit. And so we started creating meals for the staff and, and like little packages that they could take with them for a couple, you know, a couple of days worth of food and toiletries and things of that nature. And then Sam Lindsley, who worked for Liz Doug and I for 15 years, became very heavily involved in the Ohio Restaurant Association. So, you know, Sam reached out to me and he said, you know, we got problems, you know, across the state and with people unemployed and they, they, they got not get enough food and this and, you know. So I'm like, all right, Sam, let me, let's, let's figure this out. So I did a couple things directly with them. And then I said, well, let me see if I can make my foundation activate some more things for you guys. Um, and like the first thing we did, it was like such a silly thing, but Olivia's like, you should have a cameo. Let's do cameo. So I'm like, all right, we'll open a cameo account of whatever. I think it was a hundred dollars and we're just going to donate everything to charity. And I mean, I think we, over the course of six months or whatever it is, we've done over 40,000 in cameos. So that's all went to the charities. And then, you know, I, I've worked a lot with charity stuff with the calves and, you know, doing stuff for LeBron and the Browns and the Indians. And so I reached out to the people that I know there and they all made substantial donations to the, to my charity. And, and so we've just, we continue to funnel the money from the charity currently towards restaurant employees. Like I've done a lot of charitable work over the autism speaks and, you know, and like people like Rachel rejected you. But it was like, when I, when all this started happening, I'm like, I, I just have to, this is what I understand the best. And, you know, I'm watching an industry that's I've spent three quarters of my life in just collapsing upon itself. Um, and, and the amount of employees, you know, restaurant employees, the paycheck to paycheck, I, it's just the nature of the beast, you know, some more so than others, you know, I'm like, how, how could we, you know, we're going to do our best to take care of our people, but there's still a lot more people other than our people. Like how, what can we do to help take care of, of them also? And, and the Ohio, the Ohio Restaurant Association has done a really fantastic job. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm proud of where our foundation is and what it was able to do during that time. Like, you know, like also the stuff we were doing with the Cleveland food banks at the time, it was, uh, what was happening with the food banks is they weren't having trouble getting food donated, but most of their workers were elderly. So they didn't have anybody to cook or serve the food. So, you know, that's when we started doing using our donations and their donations to start preparing meals and dropping it off at the, at the food banks. So then they, all they needed was someone to serve, but we were able to cook it all because they essentially lost like 80% of their workforce because their workforce was high risk to come in during, during the pandemic. Wow. And you do, I mean, you do a tremendous amount of work with in New York city harvest. I feel like you've done plenty with and no kid hungry, share, share strength, no kid hungry on a national level and probably plenty more, but you, you, you just rattled off some awesome organizations, including your own. Are there any kind of want to let you shed light on an organization or fund that you want to raise awareness for or want listeners to hear about or um, oh gosh, I, there's so many. I mean, I, I do a lot of things with autism because I have a, a couple of friends whose kids are on the spectrum and I learn more about it consistently. And, you know, I, I think whenever I, I think, and there's a lot of autism foundations, I think they all do great, great work. You know, I also think the Betri Foundation does an incredible job working on lunch programs and meals for kids and, and things of that nature. I think he's spectacular at that. And then, you know, a school that we 
try to do a lot with at home that isn't a quote-unquote charity, but is urban community schools in, in Cleveland, Ohio, where, you know, they take a lot of inner-city kids that really wouldn't have the opportunity to, to get the education that they're getting, and 85% of the kids are going to college, and so that's a, another um, program that, that we like to do a lot of work with. Awesome. I want to do a quick speed round, and then we could close out. Yeah. What did you have for dinner last night? What did I have for dinner last night? Um, Pappardelle bolognese. Cold. <laughs> I made it the day before. I ate it cold out of the bowl. Amazing. Name a smell in the kitchen you love. Searing meat. Mm. Name a smell in the kitchen you hate. Mm. Rotting fruit. <laughs> we Earlier we talked about what uh, pisses you off or frustrates you in the kitchen, but what makes you happy in the kitchen? Uh, people. And last tattoo you got. Oh, gosh. I've got a new one for about 15 years. The last one that I've got is across my stomach. It's written in... ACDC letters, except it's mine and Liz's initials, MSLS, with the lightning bolt in between. Do you need Liz's permission to get uh, tattoos? No, she's given up a long time ago. <laughs> it kind of, you know, we met 30 years ago. I already had, uh, you know, I started getting tattoos at a young age, much to my parents' chagrin. So I, I, I was already started to be a little bit of a covered canvas, even back in those days. And her, her dad and brother are both bikers, so she, she's seen her share of tattoos. Got it, got it. All right, so for like, I don't know, how many seasons was the Chew? Seven, eight seasons? Seven seasons, 1,450 episodes. I mean, that was one of the biggest cooking shows, quite frankly, TV, daytime TV. What do you miss most about that? And what's a guy got to do to get like a reboot or something? <laughs> um, you know what? I miss the people. I, you know, we had uh, 200 people worked on that show. Very few changed over the course of those seven years. So in addition to, you know, laughing my ass off of Clinton Kelly on a daily basis and all the other hosts, you know, the people that worked on the show, the cameramen, the kitchen crew, the, the you know, all the people that make a show possible. Um, I miss those people. I, they were, they, they become family after, you know, you spend four days a week with them for seven years. So, you know, that's, that's definitely what I miss the most. All right. So you've done, I mean, when I was like digging into research and you know, whatnot that I do for these, it's like so many books, so many shows, every freaking accolade for restaurants. Is there anything in the culinary world that you'd like to do that you haven't done yet? I, you know, I, I love teaching. I, it's really what I enjoy doing the most. It's like, you know, even when we were doing the, the pandemic shows, I, you know, I love that. I love teaching. I love teaching people how to cook. You know, so I, I, I think I, and then with my granddaughter now, you know, she's two and like, I'm very excited. Like she loves to eat like anything I make her, she eats, which I love, but I can't wait till she could start to cook. You know, so I, you know, I think I would, I, I would, I want to continue to look at, continuing to look at teaching younger kids, especially, I think, how to cook and appreciate food and, and maybe ones that don't have the, some of the opportunities that I've been lucky enough to have when it, when it comes to food. And, and, you know, cause I, I, I think both not only as a trade, but just as, as the ability to put a great meal on the table for yourself and your family is, is I think a special thing. So, you know, I, I, moving on as I get a little bit older, it's like, uh, you know, I don't have this huge desire to open like more restaurants or all these restaurants, that kind of stuff. But I do always have a really burning desire to 
teach people how to cook. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, let's close it out with Cleveland Browns won the Super Bowl and won a celebratory team dinner. What are you making? Whatever they want. <laughs> Literally, whatever they want. I don't care if it happens and like Baker calls me up and says, we need, I don't care what it is. I got it. <laughs> you name Consider it, it done. I got it done. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks, dude. I appreciate you uh, taking the time to do this. An hour is a lot of time in the wonderful world of Chef Michael Simon. So thank you for all you do. The smiles you bring to people's faces, your charitable work, your community work. It's, it's, it's incredible. So yeah, well, I like what I do. I'm very lucky, very lucky to be, uh, for 25 to 30 years of my life, I haven't felt like I worked a single day. So I'm, I'm a lucky guy. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Thanks again to Chef Michael Simon. Find more on him at michaelsimon.com. And to learn more about the Michael D. Simon Foundation, go to michaelsimon.com backslash foundation. Find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media platforms at On Kathy's Plate or go to beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Beyond the Plate is on all of the socials at BT Plate Podcast. This episode was produced by myself along with Ian Cohen, Joel Yetton, and Sean Petrosian. Thank you to Sarah McClellan for her digital media savviness. Our music has been composed by Gold Ford. Find him at iGoldFord. As always, special shout out to my wife, Katie, for proofreading everything I hand to her. Uh, probably at the last minute. My bad. Please rate, review, and or subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice. Join us this Friday for our second episode of Beyond the Drink, a little companion podcast, if you will. This one's made possible with the help of our friends at Deep Eddie Vodka. We'll be talking with a beverage pro out of Austin, Texas, who created one of the greatest cocktails I've had in the past year. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy. And remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen.